You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Well, another new month is upon us. Happy one year of quarantine, by the way. And that means it's time for a new theme. This month, we are delving into some true crime and covering some of the most notorious deaths and murders in Tinseltown. This week, I'm covering arguably the most famous and my gateway drug into a nearly 20-year love affair with true crime with the Tate LaBianca murders and the legacy of Charlie Manson and his family. Fun fact, my mom gave me the book Helter Skelter to read when I was 12, yes 12, and I even made a board game of it for my 7th grade English project, making my hippy-dippy English teacher regret allowing us to do a report on, quote, whatever we wanted. She used to refer to Helter Skelter as my Bible, because I used to carry it around with me, and I would just like to tell Miss Scully that I in fact did not turn out to be a serial killer. I became something much worse, an aspiring filmmaker with hipster-like tendencies, an affinity for craft beer and avocado toast, and did I mention that I also have a podcast? Anyway, what happens when a failed musician-turned-cult leader decides to wreak havoc on the town that turned him down? And what happened to that town in the wake of that chaos? Well, you'll just have to stick around to find out. Get comfortable, because this is going to be a long one. Oh, and one last thing. If you're squeamish about true crime and murder stuff, I don't get terribly graphic, but still, listener beware. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. It was 8 a.m. on August 9th, 1969, and Winifred Chapman was late to work. She had the unreliable L.A. public transport to thank for that. Winifred was the housekeeper at 150 Cielo Drive, which was currently being rented by actress Sharon Tate and her director husband, Roman Polanski. Sharon was eight and a half months pregnant, and Roman was away in London shooting his latest film. After hitching a ride up the hill from the bus stop from a friend, Winifred passed several cars in the driveway, including a rambler she was unfamiliar with. Sharon often had guests stay the night, especially when Roman was out of town, so this was odd, but not distractingly so. Winifred entered the house through the back door, having noticed a couple of odd things on her walk up the driveway, including the parking gate being wonky and an outside light being left on. 
She went to pick up the phone in the kitchen and found it dead. When she attempted to find Sharon and inform her of the downed phone line, she saw her first glimpse of the carnage, though she didn't know it yet. She saw red splashes everywhere and that the front door was ajar with something red also smeared on it. Looking out the front door, she saw the first body. Winifred sprinted out the way she came, but when she got to the driveway, she bolted on the opposite side of the white rambler than she'd seen on her way in. It was then that she saw the second body in the driver's seat of the rambler. Winifred made it to the nearest neighbor, and when no one answered, to the next at 190 Cielo Drive. She banged on the door, screaming murder, death, bodies, blood, until the couple that resided there answered the door. Jim Azen, the couple's son, was in the front yard and ran to see his parents comforting the woman. Jim noted the time as his father Ray phoned the police. 8.33 a.m. Ray knew the owner of the house two doors down and the current tenants, a rundown of which he gave to the first officer on the scene, Officer Jerry DeRosa. When DeRosa tried to get information from a nearly catatonic Winifred, she was unable to tell him the identities of the bodies she had seen. He did, however, manage to get information on how to access the house from her and with a rifle in tow, entered the scene. The body in the Rambler belonged to 18-year-old Stephen Parent, whom had been visiting the caretaker for the house, a victim of wrong place, wrong time. Stephen would be classified as a John Doe for several hours before his family managed to identify him. Two more officers arrived by the time DeRosa reached the front lawn, where the remains of Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski were found stabbed and bludgeoned to death on the front lawn. Frykowski had also been shot. In the house were the bodies of Sharon Tate and her friend and one-time boyfriend, Jay Sebring. They were found in the living room, a rope tied around both their necks, which connected the two of them. They had also been stabbed, and additionally, Jay had been shot. On the front door, written in what turned out to be Sharon's blood, was the word pig. After viewing the carnage in the house, the police apprehended William Gerritsen, the 19-year-old caretaker whom Stephen Parent had been visiting the night before. Gerritsen lived in a guest house separate from the main one. Believing him to be the perpetrator of the five murders, police marched William across the front yard, demanding he identify the victims. The 19-year-old was in such a state of shock, he couldn't even identify Stephen in the car. He would eventually be cleared of the murders when it became obvious he could not have possibly done them. He also said that he'd heard nothing, though later interviews he changed that story. Gerritsen would struggle for years with PTSD and drug abuse as a result of the trauma sustained from this day. William Tennant, Polanski's business agent, arrived at the house just before noon and identified the bodies, save Stephen Parents. After seeing Sharon and Jay's bodies, William vomited. He would be the one to inform Roman of the tragedy that had befallen his beloved wife and her friends. By that afternoon, the newspapers carried the headline, quote, Film star, four others dead in blood orgy. Sharon Tate victim in ritual murders. Lieutenant, we just term murder. Now, are, are you saying that all five were murdered? We don't know. These are, these are things that we'll have to determine. Uh, 
with our investigation and the doctor could, Noguchi. Was there evidence of a party in there? Not to my knowledge. Any narcotics involved in this at all? Not that we know of. Was there evidence of a fight anywhere? Struggle. This again, I'd rather not comment on because uh, the investigation is not complete. Especially in this case, I feel like the murderers always get more attention than their victims. So I wanted to give you a little background as to whom these people were before we talk about their deaths any further. Jay Sebring started his career as a Navy barber before moving to Los Angeles, eventually becoming a hairdresser whom specialized in men's hair care and styling. He had founded Sebring International, under which he did his business. Jay's hairstyles defined much of the style of the 1960s. His clients included Paul Newman, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jim Morrison. Abigail Folger, as her name might suggest, was the heiress to the Folger Coffee Company. She'd grown up in Northern California before spending time in New York, where she would meet Wojtek Frykowski in 1968. Finding life as an heiress unfulfilling, she moved back to California, where she volunteered as a social worker at the L.A. County Welfare Department. Wojtek Frykowski had been childhood friends with Roman Polanski. Having no means to finance himself, Wojtek largely lived off of Abigail's fortune and claimed to be a writer, though he never allowed anyone to read anything he'd written. He'd also introduced Abigail to the mind-expanding elements the 60s were known for, including marijuana, LSD, cocaine, and MDA, the latter of which was found in both Abigail and Wojtek's systems at the time of their deaths. This led to the police initially believing that the murders were drug-related. Stephen Parent was a recent high school graduate whom had been working as a delivery boy as well as a part-time stereo salesman in order to afford college in the fall. Finally, it was Sharon Tate, a young actress that had, until becoming pregnant, focused all of her energy on becoming a successful actress. Signed to the production company Filmways, she began her career in bit parts in television before she was transitioned into film roles. Back then, you were widely either one or the other. It would be on her second starring film role, The Fearless Vampire Killers, that she would meet and fall in love with up-and-coming director Roman Polanski. Sharon would become a semi-household name thanks to her work in the film Valley of the Dolls, in which she played a struggling young actress that ends up working in softcore porn. While that film was not terribly well-reviewed by the critics, it did give Sharon a nomination for Best Promising Newcomer at the Golden Globes. Sharon married Roman in a London ceremony in January 1968. A year later, Sharon was pregnant with her first child and staring down the pathway to what might have been an often sought-after but rarely achieved thing in Hollywood, a steady acting career. Though this hardly mattered to her now that she was about to become a mother. The expecting couple moved into the house on Cielo Drive in late 1968. The house had a long history of Hollywood tenants before they moved in, including Lillian Gish, Henry Fonda, and Cary Grant. Their new home was modeled after a French farmhouse and had even graced the pages of architectural magazines. This was where Sharon wanted to start her family. We have a 
weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Two bodies inside, two bodies outside. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. While the police admitted they had no suspects in the Bel Air massacre, there were two more murders 15 miles away in the Silver Lake section of Los Angeles. Market owner Leo LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were found by their children stabbed and mutilated. The word war was carved into LaBianca's chest, and death to pigs was smeared in the blood of one of the victims. The word pig had been scrawled in blood on the door of the Bel Air mansion, where actress Sharon Tate and four others were slain. But police said, despite the similarities, they do not believe the crimes are linked. Across town, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca went to bed in their Los Feliz home in the early hours of August 10th, knowing of the carnage that had befallen the young film star and her friends. Leno was the owner of a string of Los Angeles grocery stores, and Rosemary owned a dress shop. Rosemary was reportedly shaken up about the news of the Tate murders. Police received a call on August 10th from Frank Struthers, Rosemary's son from a previous marriage. Upon his arrival to his mother and stepfather's home, he sensed that something was amiss. The couple's boat was still attached to their car, despite having gone to the lake the day prior. Leno famously hated leaving the boat out overnight. Frank also noticed that the blinds had been drawn in the kitchen, but the lights were on. When he knocked at the door, there was no answer. Frightened, Frank walked to the nearest payphone in an effort to get a hold of his sister Suzanne. She and her boyfriend picked Frank up about an hour or so later and returned to the LaBianca residence. They found house keys in their mother's car, and the three entered the residence. The boys checked out the house while Suzanne stayed in the kitchen. It was in the living room that they found the body of Leno LaBianca. The call came into the LAPD at 10.26 p.m. Police arrived on the scene about nine minutes later. Leno had been stabbed dozens of times and also had the word war carved into his stomach. There was also a fork jammed into his abdomen. Rosemary was in their bedroom, stabbed to death in one of her favorite nightgowns, a lamp cord wrapped around her neck. In various places around the house were the words rise, death to pigs, and helter skelter. Helter was spelled like helter, written in blood. When the news of yet another violent murder reached the papers the following day with the headline, quote, second ritual killings here, Los Feliz couple slain, linked to five-way murder scene, rampant fear broke out in Tinseltown. Mr. Polanski had returned to Los Angeles from London and was in seclusion with friends. And police today could but speculate whether these two crimes this weekend, so grotesquely similar, 
had been done by the same person, or perhaps news reports of the first crime had inspired somebody else to do the second. The only suspect police had, William Gerritsen, the young caretaker found at the Polanski home, said he had been sleeping during the murders there. And so this afternoon, after much questioning, police let him go. With two incredibly horrifying and violent murders in as many days, the people of Los Angeles were understandably on edge. The death of an actress and her friends in a swanky house in the hills was one thing, but the death of a grocery store and boutique owners meant that it could happen to anyone. Even without the internet, misinformation about what happened at the Tate Polanski residence ran rampant through Hollywood in the days and weeks following the grisly murders. Joan Didion, whom wrote extensively about the cultural shifts that occurred in Los Angeles in the late 60s, recalls in her book, The White Album, about the mood in town following the Sharon Tate murders. Quote, many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, at the exact moment when word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. Joan goes on to describe the cycle of misinformation that spread as well. Quote, there were rumors. There were stories. Everything was unmentionable, but nothing was unimaginable. This mystical flirtation with the idea of sin, this sense that it was possible to go too far and that many people were doing it, was very much with us in Los Angeles in 1968 and 1969. A demented and seductive vortical tension was building in the community. The jitters were setting in. I recall a time when the dogs barked every night and the moon was always full. On August 9th, 1969, I was sitting in the shallow end of my sister-in-law's swimming pool in Beverly Hills when she received a telephone call from a friend who had just heard about the murders at Sharon Tate Polanski's house on Cielo Drive. The phone rang many times during the next hour. These early reports were garbled and contradictory. One caller would say hoods, the next would say chains. There were 20 dead, no 12, 10, 18. Black masses were imagined and bad trips blamed. I remember all of the day's misinformation very clearly. And I also remember this. And I wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised. The elite members in town ramped up their security. People in middle-class neighborhoods locked their doors for the first time. The Tate-LaBianca murders, as Joe Didion had so aptly put in her book, had brought the swinging 60s to an end in Los Angeles. Despite the horrors that transpired at Cielo Drive, half the people in Hollywood either claimed that they had been there that day, were supposed to attend a party at the house that night, or had been planning on spending the night at the Cielo Drive house that evening. No party took place, nor was one ever planned. As that day, one of the hottest of that year, Sharon was cranky, hot, and very pregnant. Restless people from the sick city burnt their homes down to make the sky look pretty. What can I do? I'm just a person. This is the line that we always seem to hear. 
just sit. Things get worse than watch TV and drink your beer. Walking all alone, not going anywhere. Walking all alone, nobody seemed to care. Restless as the wind, this town is killing me. Gotta put an end to this restless misery. After two months of running down leads, a police and park ranger raid took place at Barker Ranch in Death Valley, California. The targets were a group of primarily young women in their 20s, a few men around the same age, and their charismatic leader, 35-year-old Charles Charlie Manson. Charlie Manson was a wannabe musician who had come out to Hollywood from the Bay Area in Northern California about two years earlier with members of his family in hopes of landing a recording contract. Manson had had a pretty tumultuous life up until this point, having spent more time of his life behind bars than in front of them. He wasn't a great musician, but he was charming and had a lot of drugs, which drew people to him. This was how he assembled his family, made up primarily of impressionable middle-class young women. At the time of the murders, the Manson family had been staying at Spawn Ranch, a vacated movie ranch in the San Fernando Valley. Rumored projects, as there is no reliable list, to have shot there included Clayton Moore's The Lone Ranger and a few episodes of Bonanza. The Manson family fled the ranch after a previous police raid a week after the Tate-LaBianca murders due to auto thefts allegedly perpetrated by the family. The other perpetrators of the auto thefts were rounded up as the ones who had also taken part in the Tate-LaBianca murders had fled the state. Now behind bars, Susan Atkins one of Charlie's most loyal followers, started bragging to several inmates, most notably her cellmate, about her involvement in the Tate-LaBianca murders. In an attempt to get reduced sentences for themselves, Susan's audience members began ratting her out. Soon, the events of those August nights began coming to light. The day before the Tate murders was in the middle of a three-day heat wave. August 8th was the hottest night of the year. Sharon, Jay, Abigail, and Wojtek went out and had dinner at Hollywood Hotspot El Coyote before returning to the house. The night of the murders, Charlie sent out four members of his family to the house on Cielo Drive with the instructions, quote, kill everyone inside and leave something witchy. His four disciples, dressed in black clothing, snorted speed and raced off into the night. Tex Watson, the only male perpetrator on the scene of the murders, climbed the telephone pole and cut the wires to the Cielo house. They then parked the car down the street and snuck up the hill. The first to die was Stephen Parent. He was visiting William Garretson in the hopes of selling him a clock radio. The two each had a beer, and Stephen departed, having not sold the radio. If he had left even two minutes sooner, he would have likely lived. Had he left any later, William Garretson would have likely also been killed. Instead, Stephen Parent came face to face with Tex Watson, whom told him to halt. Tex then shot him multiple times, killing him. Tex popped a screen to the house. The windows had been left open due to the hot night and let the girls in through the front door. 
the one that would have Peg written on it by the time the night was over. They found Wojtek asleep on the couch, and he was kicked awake by Tex. When he asked him who he was, Tex replied, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work. Susan did a survey of the house, finding Abigail in bed reading, and Sharon and Jay in a back bedroom talking. Tex had her tie up Wojtek with a towel. Abigail, Sharon, and Jay were brought into the living room and tied up with rope. Jay objected to them doing this to Sharon. Can't you see she's pregnant, he asked. Tex responded by shooting him and then kicking and stabbing him in front of the others. Wojtek got loose and ran in the chaos, and Tex gave chase and shot, stabbed, and killed him. Abigail also ran, and Patricia Krenwinkel gave chase to her and killed her by stabbing. They died about 30 feet apart from each other. Sharon, having watched her friends being viciously murdered, begged the Manson family to take her with them so she might have her baby, and then they could kill her. Susan Atkins said to Sharon, Look, bitch, I have no mercy for you, and stabbed her 16 times. If she had gotten medical attention, the coroner later determined that her baby would have lived. Many people in the hills heard the gunshots and screams in the night, but as the sounds were bouncing through the canyon, no one could place them. Before leaving the house, Tex sent Susan back, and she wrote Pig on the front door in Sharon's blood. They drove a few blocks, hosed off at a house where the couple living there caught them, yelled at them for trespassing, and they fled. The quad of murderers ditched their clothes in the canyon as well, and chucked the gun out the window into what they thought was woodland, but was actually someone's backyard. It would be recovered on September 1st. The following evening, Charlie drove Tex, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Linda Kasabian, Leslie Van Houten, and Stephen Grogan around Hollywood in search of further victims. They avoided houses that had pictures of kids visible, considered shooting people in cars at lights, before they reached the Silver Lake area. Charlie recognized a house next door to the LaBiancas as a place where the family had partied in the past. Not wanting the murders to be traced back to him, the LaBianca house was chosen. Charlie and Tex entered the house and tied Leno and Rosemary up with leather laces. Tex gagged them with electrical cords and covered their heads with pillowcases. Charlie then left, his family to do the killing. Leno was first, and when Rosemary heard him being murdered in the living room, she began swinging the lamp in the bedroom at Leslie and Patricia. Tex entered the room and stabbed her to death. Leslie also stabbed her, but it was likely Rosemary had already died. The group then ate watermelon from the fridge and left the rinds in the sink to make the police think that black people had committed the crime. We'll get to the reason for that in a moment. Yes, it was racist, but it goes a little deeper and weirder beyond that, which isn't surprising when considering the fact that all of this was concocted and carried out by people who probably consumed more drugs than food. Finally, before leaving the house, they stole some of Rosemary's clothes, ate more food in the bushes, and eventually hitchhiked back to Spawn Ranch. Despite all of the similarities between the two murders, as well as another murder, that of Gary Hinman, who was killed in July of 1969, with the words political piggy being left on the walls of that crime scene, the murders were not linked for several months. All three cases were being handled by three different teams of detectives. 
Susan's jailhouse confessions linked the crimes for detectives. Always is always forever, cause one is one is one. Look inside yourself for your father, all is none, all is none, all is one. Time to talk, time from behind you, the illusion has been just a dream. The valley of death and I'll find you, now is when on a sunshine beam. So bring only your perfection, for there must will surely be no cold pink fear of hunger. You can't see, you can't see, you can't see. The owner of the house on Cielo Drive, Rudy Altabelli, claimed that he, as well as Paramount Pictures head and friend of the Polanskis, Robert Evans and Jack Nicholson, yes, that Jack Nicholson, were the ones that cleaned up the house before Roman returned from London. Robert put him up on the Paramount lot in an apartment, and Roman was later interviewed and photographed at the Cielo house days after the murders, with blood still visible everywhere. But why had this house been the target? Turns out, it all started with a Beach Boy. Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, was driving his red Ferrari down the PCH in April 1968, when he picked up two hitchhikers, future murderer Patricia Krenwinkel and fellow Manson family member Ella Jo Bailey. Dennis took them back to his place, where they had sex, as one does with two strangers you pick up on the side of the highway, and then left them at his house to go to a recording session. When he returned home, the rest of the Manson family had taken up residence. Charlie Manson introduced himself to Dennis by kissing his feet and charming him. The two forged a toxic, symbiotic relationship. Dennis had music business connections, which Charlie wanted, and Charlie had a harem of girls and drugs, which Dennis wanted. The family caused thousands of dollars in damage to Dennis's house and property, including one family member crashing his uninsured Mercedes, and of course, they stole a bunch of stuff. Despite this, Dennis introduced Charlie to Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, whom was a songwriter and music producer. He lived at the 150 Cielo Drive house when Dennis introduced Terry and Charlie. Charlie auditioned for him at that house. Unlike his buddy, Terry was unimpressed by Charlie Manson. Later, the family would claim that Terry made promises to Charlie about giving him a record deal, something Terry has vehemently denied. Finally having his fill with his stuff being either broken or stolen, Dennis kicked the family out. Well, I say he. Dennis moved in with his songwriting partner, Greg Jacobson, and made his manager do the dirty work of actually evicting the Manson family. The Beach Boys by this point had actually recorded one of Charlie's songs, though they changed the lyrics quite a bit. Never Learned to Love by the Beach Boys was originally ceased to exist when Charlie originally wrote it. Charlie did not receive a writing credit for the song, Dennis actually did, which the band agreed would be recompense for all the stealing and damage done by the Manson family. Dennis Wilson would have his own tragic death, dying in an alcohol-related drowning. His substance abuse was partially blamed on his unfulfilling career as a drummer, as well as the responsibility he felt in regards to the Tate murders. 
After Dennis, the Manson family moved to Spawn Ranch after charming the owner. There, as he'd done throughout his life, Charlie began intensely studying the Bible and, like any good cult leader, found passages that suited his needs. His favorites, it should come as no surprise, were from the Book of Revelations. The White Album by the Beatles became Charlie's soundtrack of choice at Spawn Ranch, as he believed the Beatles were speaking directly to him through the record and started using the lyrics in tandem with the verses from the Bible. On the song Revolution, Charlie claimed to hear the lyrics, Charlie, send us a telegram, which he tried to do but did not achieve. Charlie believed the album was ultimately telling him to start Helter Skelter, which Charlie believed to be an apocalyptic war between white people and black people, which would result in the apocalypse. Racial tension was quite high in the 1960s, and Charlie believed he was the person the Beatles were tasking with setting off a race war. I listened to the White Album today before I recorded. Maybe it's because I'm not on a ton of drugs, or the fact that I'm in possession of more or less all of my mental faculties, but I, would you believe it, did not come to this conclusion. On March 23, 1969, Charlie returned to the Cielo Drive house in an attempt to find Terry Melcher and demand information on the status of his recording contract. Whom he found instead was Sharon's photographer, whom told him that Terry no longer lived at the residence. Sharon had been on the porch and likely saw the man responsible for her death four and a half months before it happened. Another murder perpetrated by the Manson family during the summer of 1969 was that of Gary Hinman, which occurred in late July 1969. Gary was a teacher, musician, possible drug dealer, and most dangerously, a friend of the Manson family. Hinman was tortured for days by family member Bobby Beausoleil over either a bad drug deal or some money that Gary had that Charlie wanted. Charlie and another member of the family eventually showed up and cut Hinman's ear with a big knife or machete or something of the like. The family girls that were there stitched it up with dental floss. Gary was eventually stabbed to death while they held a pillow over his face. They then wrote political piggy on the wall in his blood as well as a paw print in an attempt to frame the Black Panthers for his murder. Bobby was arrested for the murder a few days later as he was found sleeping in the back seat of Hinman's stolen car. The knife, still covered in Hinman's blood, was found in the wheel well of the car. Some theorize that the Tate murders were an attempt to clear Bobby's name. Allegedly sick of waiting for Helter Skelter, Charlie summoned three of his girls in the middle of the night, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian, as well as Tex Watson, and gave them marching orders on Terry Melcher's former home. He told them how to access the house and gave them bolt cutters for the phone lines. Another 1969 Manson family murder was that of Shorty Shea, a ranch hand on the Spawn Ranch, whom Charlie blamed for the raid that occurred on the ranch about a week after the Tate-LaBianca murders. Charlie and the family had gotten busted for being involved in a stolen dune buggy ring, but a mistake in the warrant allowed them to go free a few days later. Charlie knew that Shay had been attempting to evict them from the land, and for that, Charlie would make him pay. Shay was killed by Charlie and two others around August 25th, 1969, and his remains were not recovered until 1977 as part of a plea deal for 
from one of the other perpetrators. In September of 1969, the family moved to Barker Ranch near Death Valley to look for an underground city that Charlie believed the Beatles and the Bible told him to go look for. Charlie believed that this was where they would be safe from Helter Skelter and began outfitting dune buggies to be ready when the war started. This was where Charlie would spend his final days as a free man. I don't accept the whole situation. You know, like I was in the desert minding my business. Uh, this confusion belongs to you. It's your confusion. I don't have any confusion. I don't have any guilt. I know what I've done, and no man can judge me. I judge me. What have you done, Charlie? I've stayed in the desert and run with the coyotes and ate off the plants and found out you can live out there without this society. And that's where I'd like to go live, you know. After building the case for months, Charlie, Tex, Susan, and Patricia were all charged with seven counts of murder. Leslie Van Houten was charged with two, the LaBianca slayings, as she had not been present at the Tate murders. Charlie, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie were tried together. Tex would be tried later as he was wanted in his home state of Texas first for other crimes. After months of rampant media coverage, many people were shocked to see the identity of the perpetrators of these horrific crimes. They weren't mysterious phantoms wearing black cloaks wreaking havoc from the shadows. These were young people, all under 40, primarily women, in their 20s. They had been easy prey for Charlie, whom had collected these average-looking women from middle-class backgrounds with little to no self-esteem, quickly charming them to his whims. How could this happen to these young girls with quote-unquote normal upbringings? The trial quickly became a circus, and Charlie Manson was its ringmaster. The trial began June 15, 1970, and was extensively covered by the media, with recaps played on the news each night for nearly 10 months. Each day, either Charlie or the girls would be doing something strange. For example, some days the girls would come in singing, or the girls would stand up and scream in court. Eventually, it escalated to the women drawing X's on their foreheads, which Charlie did as well, and eventually shaving their heads. Charlie charged the judge with a pencil. According to an interview with Patricia Krenwinkel in 1994, all of this was orchestrated by Charlie. Outside the courthouse was a different kind of chaos. The girls from the Manson family who had not been charged with murder kept a vigil near the courthouse and shaved their heads when the rest of them did, and of course were always ready for media interviews. Vincent Bugliosi, the author of the quintessential tome on the Manson murders, Helter Skelter, was also the prosecutor on the case and the one who managed to successfully link Manson's control over the girls and fervor over the Helter Skelter race war as the reason these seven murders could also be pinned on Charlie Manson despite the fact that he didn't have an active role in the murders. Before Bugliosi, L.A. County had wanted to try the murders as robberies gone wrong. Bugliosi was the one who made the connections between Revelations and the White Album with the bloody words at the LaBianca crime scene to make his case, and he was the one who interrogated the Manson family members into divulging this information in court. Without the helter-skelter angle, Charlie Manson would likely have not been successfully prosecuted. 
The star witness, Linda Kasabian, had been present at both murders, but committed none, and had served as the driver and lookout depending on which night it was. She was granted immunity from the crimes in exchange for her testimony. On August 3, 1970, about two weeks into the trial, President Nixon commented on the case at a police seminar and stated that he believed that Charlie Manson was guilty. This was front-page news the following day. Due to the craziness of the trial and all of its coverage, the jury had been placed on a media blackout to prevent anything other than what was presented in the courtroom from tainting their views. Attempting to force a mistrial, Manson got a hold of a copy of the LA Times from one of the defense lawyers and brandished it in front of the jury. This little stunt failed as when the jury was sequestered, all said that Nixon's statements had no wear on their opinion of the case. Ronald Hughes, Leslie Van Houten's attorney, was probably the only one actually trying to defend his client. Since the girls were doing whatever Charlie told them to do, instead of what was actually best for them, Ronald tried to separate his client from the rest. Charlie viewed all the lawyers as his lawyer and deemed this a betrayal. One day after court, Charlie told Ronald, I don't ever want to see you in this courtroom again. And he didn't. Ronald's body was eventually found six months later under a rock. Because of the decomposition, the cause of death could not be determined. Years later, an anonymous member of the Manson family called Vincent Bugliosi and claimed that the Manson family was responsible. Charlie, of course, denied this and claims that the district attorney was to blame. At the end of the trial, all four were found guilty of the murders and were eventually sentenced to death on April 9th, 1971. Tex Watson would be found guilty of the murders on October 21st, 1971. In 1972, the death penalty was abolished in California briefly and their sentences were commuted to life. Well, you say you're operating from a sense of complete consciousness now and reality. But looking back from this point for you, what you were and what you did must be terrifying. Yes, to realize that by my own free will, I willingly got into something that completely took control over me, that I lost control of myself behind drugs and um, a process of deprogramming losing my morals. It wasn't just drugs, it was Charles Manson's persuasiveness too. Well, yeah, there was a lot of deprogramming that went in, that was involved in that. Uh, you take away a person's conscience of right and wrong by telling them when they're under LSD or any mind-expanding drug, there's no such thing as guilt. And you've already come to a place in your mind or your imagination where uh, you don't like the feeling of guilt, so it's easy to say, yeah, there's no such thing as guilt. I'll believe there's no such thing as guilt. Therefore, I can do anything and not feel guilty about it. Can you the house on Cielo Drive was demolished in 1993, and the property the house once stood on has been renumbered to avoid looky-loos. So naturally, everyone knows the new address, and there are people who still visit the area to this day. The LaBianca house remains, but has gone through several renovations over the years. Spawn Ranch burnt down in 1970 due to a wildfire. To this day, nothing has been rebuilt on the land. 
Over the years, everyone who was convicted of the Tate-LaBianca slayings has been up for parole, and so far, none have successfully gotten it. Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, has been present at most, if not all, of the hearings to ensure that doesn't happen. In the early days of their prison sentences, all of the women worked with a social worker in the hopes that they'd be freed from Charlie's grasp. They all eventually broke from his spell. In prison, Susan Atkins became a born-again Christian and would alter her version of events several times over the years in an attempt to be seen in a better light. In total, she was denied parole 13 times. In 2008, Susan was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and a compassionate release was requested. All 11 members of the parole board turned it down. She died in prison on September 24th, 2009. Leslie Van Houten would change her story too, though initially in a way that benefited Manson. She claimed he had no control over her and that she would have murdered with or without him in her life. Ben Houghton was later retried as her case was not called a mistrial when her lawyer disappeared. The retrial resulted in a hung jury, but the second one found her guilty. Ben Houghton has gone through 23 parole hearings, the last one of which was upheld on appeal on November 28, 2020 by California Governor Gavin Newsom. Patricia Krenwinkel did, like the other two, distance herself from the Manson family as time went on. She currently has a perfect prison record and is active with the AA and NA organizations. She even got a bachelor's degree in human services. Krenwinkel has been the most candid about her guilt and has never denied what she did on the nights of August 8th and August 9th, though she has downplayed it as the years have gone on. Altogether, she has been denied parole 14 times and will be eligible again in 2022. Tex Watson also converted to Christianity in prison and has four kids through a woman he married while in prison. They are now divorced. He has been denied parole 17 times. The fascination with Charlie Manson and the evil that was perpetrated in his name has not relented since the trial one iota. After the Tate-LaBianca trial, he and Susan Atkins would be additionally implicated in the death of Gary Hinman in 1971, adding to their sentences. Charlie would give several interviews over the years, including ones with Geraldo Rivera, Charlie Rose, and Diane Sawyer. Charlie changed the X on his forehead to a swastika at some point before 1981. Charlie Manson would die in prison on November 19th, 2017 from cardiac arrest due to complications from respiratory failure and colon cancer. There are so many twists and turns and rabbit holes surrounding pretty much everyone in this story, especially the other members of the Manson family, and it's easy to chase any corner of it into oblivion if I wanted to, but this episode is running long as it is. If you'd like to dive into anything further, I highly recommend the book Helter Skelter. It is a must-read for anyone with even a passing interest in true crime. Another great source for this podcast episode is The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, which is a documentary done by the founder of Dearly Departed Tours in Los Angeles, as well as findadeath.com. It covers pretty much every single home and location surrounding this story.
The cultural impact that surrounds this case is unrelenting. There have been scores of movies in varying degrees of quality and accuracy about the Manson family. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019 is a fictionalized account of individuals that came into contact with the Manson family at this time. With all of the crazy, it's easy to forget that all of this paranoia and hubbub came at the cost of seven innocent lives. The images of Sharon Tate and the other victims of the Manson family's carnage will always be synonymous with the man that ordered their deaths. The lives they lived beforehand utterly overshadowed. It's difficult, but it is imperative to remember them as whom they were before the nights they met their untimely demises and the legacies they wished for themselves. Otherwise, what did they live for? What would you ultimately like to achieve as an actress? What, in what terms? What do you mean? A particular role or a certain type of fame or what's your ultimate ambition? <sighs> Well, at this moment, I really couldn't say, but I want to remain as much myself as possible, you know, and, and just do what I feel like doing and, and what really excites me and interests me. Thank you very much, Sharon Tate, on the set of Valley of the Dolls. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. Or if you have any questions, you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people could find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I've also got merch. Check that out in the show notes as well. Next week, we're covering the life and career of Sal Mineo, the switchblade kid whose storied Hollywood career came to an abrupt end in a West Hollywood alley. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. 